Today's read, The New Jim Crow. Mass Incarceration in the Age of Color Blindness by Michelle Alexander. Chapter 1 continued. The rhetoric of quote-unquote law and order was first mobilized in the late 1950s as Southern governors and law enforcement officials attempted to generate and mobilize white opposition to the civil rights movement. In the years following Brown versus Board of Education, civil rights activists used direct action tactics in an effort to force reluctant southern states to desegregate public facilities. Southern governors and law enforcement officials often characterized these tactics as criminal and argued that the rise of the civil rights movement was indicative of a breakdown of law and order. Support of civil rights legislation was derided by Southern conservatives as merely rewarding lawbreakers. For more than a decade, from the mid-1950s until the late 1960s, conservatives systematically and strategically linked opposition to civil rights legislation to calls for law and order, arguing that Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy of civil disobedience was a leading cause of crime. Civil rights protests were frequently depicted as criminal rather than political in nature and federal courts were accused of excessive lenience toward lawlessness, thereby contributing to the spread of crime. In the words of then Vice President Richard Nixon, the increasing crime rate can be traced directly to the spread of the corrosive doctrine that every citizen possesses an inherent right to decide for himself which laws to obey and when to disobey them. Some segregationists went further, insisting that integration causes crime, citing lower crime rates in southern states as evidence that segregation was necessary. In the words of Representative John Bell Williams, this exodus of Negroes from the South and their influx into the great metropolitan centers of other areas of the nation has been accompanied by a wave of crime. What has civil rights accomplished for these areas? Segregation is the only answer, as most Americans, not the politicians, have realized for hundreds of years. Unfortunately, at the same time that civil rights were being identified as a threat to law and order, the FBI was reporting fairly dramatic increases in the national crime rate. Beginning in the 1960s, crime rates rose in the United States for a period of about 10 years. Reported street crime quadrupled and homicide rates nearly doubled. Despite significant controversy over the accuracy of crime statistics, during this period, the FBI's method of tracking crime was changing. Sociologists and criminologists agree that crime did rise, in some categories quite sharply. The reasons for the crime wave are complex but can be explained 
explained in large part by the rise of the baby boom generation, the spike in the number of young men in the 15 to 24 age group, which historically has been responsible for most crimes. The surge of young men in the population was occurring at precisely the same time that unemployment rates for black men were rising sharply, but the economic and demographic factors contributing to rising crime were not explained in the media. Instead, crime reports were sensationalized and offered as further evidence of the breakdown in lawfulness, morality, and social stability in the wake of the civil rights movement. To make matters worse, riots erupted in the summer of 1964 in Harlem and Rochester, followed by a series of uprisings that swept the nation following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. The racial imagery associated with the riots gave fuel to the argument that civil rights for blacks led to rampant crime. Cities like Philadelphia and Rochester were described as being victims of their own generosity Conservatives argued that having welcomed blacks migrating from the South, these cities were repaid with crime-ridden slums and black discontent. Barry Goldwater, in his 1964 presidential campaign, aggressively exploited the riots and fears of black crime, laying the foundation for the get-tough-on-crime movement that would emerge years later. In a widely quoted speech, Goldwater warned voters, choose the way of the Johnson administration and you have the way of mobs in the street. Civil rights activists who argued that the uprisings were directly related to widespread police harassment and abuse were dismissed by conservatives out of hand. If blacks conduct themselves in an orderly way, they will not have to worry about police brutality, argued West Virginia Senator Robert Byrd. While many civil rights advocates in this period actively resisted the attempt by conservatives to use rising crime as an excuse to crack down on impoverished black communities, some black activists began to join the calls for quote-unquote law and order and expressed support for harsh responses to lawbreakers. As Vanessa Barker describes in The Politics of Imprisonment, black activists in Harlem, alarmed by rising crime rates, actively campaigned for what would become the notorious Rockefeller drug laws, as well as other harsh sentencing measures. Wittingly, or unwittingly, they found themselves complicit in the emergence of a penal system unprecedented in world history. Black support for harsh responses to urban crime, support born of desperation and legitimate concern over the unraveling of basic security in inner city communities, helped provide political cover for conservative politicians who saw an opening to turn back the clock on racial progress in the United States. Conservatives could point to black support for highly punitive approaches to dealing with the problems of the urban poor 
as proof that race had nothing to do with their law and order agenda. Early on, little effort was made to disguise the racial motivations behind the law and order rhetoric and the harsh criminal justice legislation proposed in Congress. The most ardent opponents of civil rights legislation and desegregation were the most active on the emerging crime issue. Well-known segregationist George Wallace, for example, argued that the same Supreme Court that ordered integration and encouraged civil rights legislation was now bending over backwards to help criminals. Three other prominent segregationists, Senators McClellan, Irwin, and Thurmond, led the legislative battle to curb the rights of criminal defendants. As the rules of acceptable discourse changed, however, segregationists distanced themselves from an explicitly racist agenda. They developed instead the racially sanitized rhetoric of cracking down on crime, rhetoric that is now used freely by politicians of every stripe. Conservative politicians who embraced this rhetoric purposefully failed to distinguish between the direct action tactics of civil rights activists, violent rebellions in inner cities, and traditional crimes of an economic or violent nature. Instead, as Mark Maurer of the Sentencing Project has noted, all of these phenomena were subsumed under the heading of crime in the streets. the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the public debate shifted focus from segregation to crime. The battle lines, however, remained largely the same. Positions taken on crime policies typically cohered along lines of racial ideology. Political scientist Vesela Weaver explains, votes cast in opposition to open housing, busing, the Civil Rights Act, and other measures time and again showed the same divisions as votes for amendments to crime bills. Members of Congress who voted against civil rights measures proactively designed crime legislation and actively fought for their proposals. Although law and order rhetoric ultimately failed to prevent the formal dismantling of the Jim Crow system, It proved highly effective in appealing to poor and working-class whites, particularly in the South, who were opposed to integration and frustrated by the Democratic Party's apparent support for the civil rights movement. As Weaver notes, rather than fading, the segregationists' crime-race argument was reframed with a slightly different veneer and eventually became the foundation of the conservative agenda on crime. In fact, law and order rhetoric, first employed by segregationists, would eventually contribute to a major realignment of political parties in the United States. Political parties in the United States. Following the Civil War, party alignment was almost entirely regional. The South was solidly democratic, embittered by the war, firmly committed to the maintenance of a racial caste system, 
and extremely hostile to federal intervention on behalf of African Americans. The North was overwhelming Republican and while Republicans were ambivalent about equality for African Americans, they were far more inclined to adopt and implement racial justice reforms than their Democratic counterparts below the Mason-Dixon line. The Great Depression effectuated a sea change in American race relations and party alignment. The New Deal, spearheaded by the Democratic Party of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was designed to alleviate the suffering of poor people in the midst of the Depression, and Blacks, the poorest of the poor, benefited disproportionately. While New Deal programs were rife with discrimination in their administration, they at least included Blacks within the pool of beneficiaries. A development historian Michael Klarman has noted that was sufficient to raise Black hopes and expectations after decades of malign neglect from Washington. Poor and working class whites in both the North and South, no less than African Americans, responded positively to the New Deal, anxious for meaningful economic relief. As a result, the Democratic New Deal coalition evolved into an alliance of urban ethnic groups and the white South that dominated electoral politics from 1932 to the early 1960s. That dominance came to an abrupt end with the creation and implementation of what has come to be known as the Southern Strategy. The success of law and order rhetoric among working class whites and the intense resentment of racial reforms, particularly in the South, led conservative Republican analysis analysts to believe that a new majority could be created by the Republican Party, one that included the traditional Republican base, the white South, and half the Catholic blue-collar vote of the big cities. Some conservatives, some conservative political strategists, admitted that appealing to racial fears and antagonisms was central to this strategy, though it had to be done surreptitiously. H.R. Haldeman, one of Nixon's key advisors, recalls that Nixon himself deliberately pursued a Southern racial strategy. He, President Nixon, emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes the recognizes this while not appearing to. Let's say that again. He, President Nixon, the criminal, she didn't say that I did, emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. Similarly, John Ehrlichman, special counsel to the president, explained the Nixon administration's campaign strategy of 1968 in this way. We'll go after the racists. In Ehrlichman's view, this subliminal appeal to the anti-black voter was always present in Nixon's statements and speeches. Hmm. 
Republican strategist Kevin Phillips is often credited for offering the most influential argument in favor of a race-based strategy for Republican political dominance in the South. He argued in the emerging Republican majority published in 1969 that Nixon's successful presidential election campaign could point the way toward long-term political realignment and the building of a new Republican majority if Republicans continued to campaign primarily on the basis of racial issues using coded anti-black rhetoric. He argued that Southern white Democrats had become so angered and alienated by the Democratic Party's support for civil rights reforms, such as desegregation and busing, that those voters could be easily persuaded to switch parties if those racial resentments could be maintained. Warren Weaver, a New York Times journalist who reviewed the book upon its release, observed that Phillips' strategy largely depended upon creating and maintaining a racially polarized political environment. Full racial polarization is an essential ingredient of Phillips' political pragmatism. He wants to see a black Democratic Party, particularly in the South, because this will drive into the Republican Party precisely the kind of anti-Negro whites who will help constitute the emerging majority. This even leads him to support some civil rights efforts, appealing to the racism and vulnerability of working class whites had worked to defeat the populists at the turn of the century, and a growing number of conservatives believed the tactics should be employed again, albeit in a more subtle fashion. Thus, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, two schools of thought were offered to the general public regarding race, poverty, and the social order. Conservatives argued that poverty was caused not by structural factors related to race and class, but rather by culture, particularly black culture. This view received support from Daniel Patrick Moynihan's now infamous report on the black family, which attributed black black poverty to a black quote-unquote subculture and the quote-unquote tangle of pathology that characterized it. As described by sociologist Catherine Beckett, the alleged misbehaviors of the poor were transformed from adaptations to poverty that had the unfortunate effect of reproducing it into character failings that accounted for poverty in the first place. The social pathologies of the poor, particularly street crime, illegal drug use, and delinquency were redefined by conservatives as having their cause in overly generous relief arrangements. Black welfare cheats and their dangerous offspring emerged for the first time in the political discourse and media imagery. Liberals, by contrast, insisted that social reforms such as the war on poverty and civil rights legislation would get at the root causes of criminal behavior and stressed the social conditions that predictably generate crime. Lyndon Johnson, for example, 
argued during his 1964 presidential campaign against Barry Goldwater that anti-poverty programs were, in effect, anti-crime programs. There is something mighty wrong when a candidate for the highest office bemoans violence in the streets but votes against the war on poverty, votes against the Civil Rights Act, and votes against major educational bills that come before him as a legislator. Competing images of the poor as deserving and undeserving became central components of the debate. Ultimately, the racialized nature of this imagery became a crucial resource for conservatives who succeeded in using laws, who succeeded in using law and order rhetoric in their effort to mobilize the resentment of white working class voters, many of whom felt threatened by the sudden progress of African Americans. As explained by Thomas and Mary Edsel in their insightful book, Chain Reaction, a disproportionate share of the costs of integration and racial equality had been borne by lower and lower middle class whites who were suddenly forced to compete on equal terms with blacks for jobs and status and who lived in neighborhoods adjoining black ghettos. Their children, not the children of wealthy whites, attended schools most likely to fall under busing orders. The affluent white liberals who were pressing the legal claims of blacks and other minorities were often sheltered in their private lives and largely immune to the costs of implementing minority claims. This reality made it possible for conservatives to characterize the liberal democratic establishment as being out of touch with ordinary working people, thus resolving one of the central problems facing conservatives, how to persuade poor and working class voters to join in alliance with corporate interests and the conservative elite. By 1968, 81% of those responding to the Gallup poll agreed with the statement that law and order has broken down in this country and the majority blamed Negroes who start riots and communists. During the, president, during the presidential election that year, both the Republican candidate Richard Nixon and the independent segregationist candidate, candidate George Wallace made law and order a central theme of their campaigns and together they collected 57% of the vote. Nixon dedicated 17 speeches solely to the topic of law and order and one of his television ads explicitly called on voters to reject the lawlessness of civil rights activists and embrace order in the United States. The advertisement began with frightening music accompanied by flashing images of protesters, bloodied victims, and violence. A deep voice then said, It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Descent is a necessary ingredient of change, but in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So, I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. At the end of the ad, 
a caption declared, this time, vote like your whole world depended on it, Nixon. Viewing his own campaign ad, Nixon reportedly remarked with glee that the ad hits it right on the nose. It's all about those damn Negro Puerto Rican groups out there. Race had become, yet again, a powerful wedge, breaking up what had been a solid liberal coalition based on economic interests of the poor and the working and lower middle classes. In the 1968 election, race eclipsed class as the organizing principle of American politics, and by 1972, attitudes on racial issues rather than socioeconomic status were the primary determinant of voters' political self-identification. The late 1960s and early 1970s marked the dramatic erosion in the belief among working-class whites that the condition of the poor, or those who failed to prosper, was the result of a faulty economic system that needed to be challenged. As the Edsalls explain, the pitting of whites and blacks at the low end of the income distribution against each other intensified the view among many whites that the condition of life for the disadvantaged, particularly for disadvantaged blacks, is the responsibility of those afflicted and not the responsibility of the larger society. Just as race had been used at the turn of the century by Southern elites to capture, to rupture class solidarity at the bottom of the income ladder, race as a national issue had broken up the Democratic New Deal bottom-up coalition, a condition dependent on substantial support from all voters, white and black, at or below the median income. The conservative revolution that took root within the Republican Party in the 1960s did not reach its full development until the election of 1980, the decade preceding Ronald Reagan's ascent to the presidency was characterized by political and social crisis. As the civil rights movement was promptly followed by intense controversy over the implementation of the equality principle, especially busing and affirmative action, as well as dramatic political clashes over the Vietnam War and Watergate, during this period, conservatives gave lip service to the goal of racial equality, but actively resisted desegregation, busing, and civil rights enforcement. They repeatedly raised the issue of welfare, subtly framing it as a contest between hardworking blue-collar whites and poor blacks who refused to work. The not-so-subtle message to working-class whites was that their tax dollars were going to support special programs for blacks who most certainly did not deserve them. During this period, Nixon called for a war on drugs, an announcement that proved largely rhetorical as he declared illegal drugs public enemy number one without proposing dramatic shifts in drug policy. A backlash against blacks was clearly in force, but no consensus had yet been reached regarding what racial and social order would ultimately emerge from these turbulent times.